Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Those references will be over. There's no escaping them. Challenge accepted. Please don't. <laughs> so, Scott, Scott, where are you from? The Windy City? Stop it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the Speedster, whose article series takes you from 60 to 100. It's Matt Morgan. Now that Guilds of Ravnica is out, we know that the Assassin's Trophy is not just a drinking game anymore. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. And I am just back from working out with the guys at Tobin's house. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at EDHREC.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. So here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. And we have a new guest on today. His articles invite you to take a refreshing dip in the knowledge pool. Please welcome Scott Sutton. Hello, hello, everyone. <laughs> How is it going, Scott? It's good. Uh, it's, I mean, we've got Ravnica, right? So here we go. <laughs> Life is good with Ravnica, definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited for a few of these guys. Lazav looks great, uh, and I think Amara looks great, too. But that might be a kind of controversial opinion. Am- Amara <laughs> is great. Don't you worry. She was a complete bomb in the pre-release, for sure. 100%. Yeah, you guys just got back from playing pre-releases. So real quick intro for Scott. He writes the Knowledge Pool series on EDHREC. He's one of our longstanding authors, so we're so happy that we can have him on the show. And real quick, to kind of get to know you, Scott, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? What kind of decks you like to play and such? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, if you have had the chance to read my articles, you've heard this a million times before. Uh, But if you have not, uh, I am a Timmy. And by that, I mean I like to play big spells. Um, so basically I, I like anything big in commander and that ends up usually being teamer colors. Um, but honestly, I can kind of, uh, extrapolate that to anything busted. That's what, um, some of my friends know me for is playing the more broken spells in commander. And so stuff like the Joyra from Dominaria, she was my favorite commander from that set and anything I can do something big and stupid with that, that makes me happy. I can get behind that. Yeah, that definitely resonates with me, too. I like to usually involve a little bit of necromancy with my big and stupid stuff, but I do like doing the huge grand (laughs) stuff at the table for sure. So I'm on board with that. We just had to to get the necromancy comment out of the way soon. Yep. A necromancy comment is due every episode. So it was a Valduk comment every episode. It's We're contractually obligated at this point. Uh, So Dana, Matt, you guys mentioned that you had just come from pre-releases. How were those experiences? How fun was New Ravnica? It was super fun. I, of course, forced Selesnia. Well, I opened Selesnia, so it wasn't really forced. But my promo was the new Amara, and she was a house. Oh, she was so good. Between all my stuff to tap on my head, eight Convoke spells, and between that and there was 
some one three flyer that when he attacks, uh, it gives another creature without flying flying. So Amara was tapped at least half of the time, and she's so good, like just just the best card in the deck, far and away. It was so much fun, and I happened to go four zero at a brand new store, and I felt kind of bad because the new guy comes in and four O's didn't lose <laughs> a game, and I'm like, well, thanks for the store credit, guys. <laughs> Now, well, to, that's to be good fair, to hear, there, Dana. there were actually only four people at Matt's pre-release, so I mean, <laughs> but still, that's, that's a good there, result. There would have to there would have to be five, sir. All right, there would have to be five mathematically. Well, I assumed you got to buy in one of those games. Oh, that's my true. <laughs> Dana, how was your pre-release? I'm really good. I opened Golgari and wound up basically playing Saltai Control. My promo was a find and finality, um, which is that basically kind of a languish in Golgari and I opened the second one and just a bunch of removal and board wipes. So I just basically ground the game out. I think I won one game with two cards left in my library and I won one with three. Wow. So I was basically, I would just basically like, you know, just use everyone's resources up and then win with, you know, like some little two, two flyer or something. I was just really, really impressed with all the decks I saw. Um, mine as well was fun to play, but I felt like everybody I saw play, their deck felt like a deck. Like it felt like the mechanics were really interactive with one another. There was a lot of synergy. I could see what they were trying to do. And that happens sometimes, but I felt like almost everyone was able to build a deck that felt like it was able to play like, like a real deck. I don't know if I've ever seen that at a pre-release before where that many decks work that well. Yeah, I, that's been my experience too in some pre-releases where it feels a little fiddly. Uh, yeah. My deck doesn't quite get there when I'm drafting or my sealed pool doesn't quite support the strategy I want to try. So it's reassuring to hear that everyone got to do what the decks want to do. Yeah, yeah, it, like all, all the two-color pairs are super well-supported. And, like, and this was just limited, so you know, doing draft, I imagine it's going to be even more. Yeah, absolutely. So that sounds like a lot of fun. And I know in our particular Ravnica set review for EDH, we were, you know, hit or miss on some of those particular cards, but it's nice to hear that it's playing so well in Limited. And Scott was right when he said that some of these new commanders do look pretty cool. Uh, for now, though, Scott, we don't want to, you know, just talk about Limited. We are a commander podcast. We are an EDH Rec podcast, and you write for EDH Rec, so we want to get to talking about the series that you write for EDH Rec, The Knowledge Pool. Could you tell us a little about, about your series? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, basically, the way it kind of started out, um, actually, it started because I was talking with another one of the writers for EDH Rec, uh, Mason, uh, who does the Underdogs Corner. Um, he's a good friend of mine, and um, he and I talk about Commander all the time. He was telling me about, and I was reading all the cool articles you guys are putting up here, and I was like, it sounded like a lot of fun, frankly. And uh, one thing that I've always been a fan of when it comes to Commander are... Uh, commander primers, I, I don't know if that's a ubiquitous term, but uh, essentially, like, whenever somebody uh, puts together an article that goes into, like, detail about how a commander works, the kinds of things that make that deck tick, the synergies that work, the, synerg the things that don't work, that sort of thing really has always really appealed to me. And um, when I, what, what kind of birthed the knowledge pool was... Um, I, I would always build, always build these decks, um, whatever it might be, and I would be, become really excited by the synergies and interactions that I'd find when I was building them, and I would end up texting them to people. And it would be these walls of text, and I ended up realizing that instead of just harassing my poor friends, I should probably just put these things down on paper. 
Uh, if they were, <laughs> <laughs> because the stuff I would send them was always the stuff that I found the most exciting, and I kind of combined that with, um, you know, I always thought the primers would be a fun thing to write. It's something I always kind of wanted to write for my own decks, and then I was just thinking, you know, I tried to kind of merge those ideas and then put my own deck building spin onto things so that um, I could make a little bit my own. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I've noticed about your particular series. Some of us will take for granted that our audience already knows what a commander does, and so we'll jump straight into the strategy, but you really do take the time to explain, here's XYZ factor for this commander, here are all of the different things that you can and should look for when building around them. There are so many different directions to take them. And so it is, I hope it doesn't sound like an insult, but it is a very classic style of article, which is really refreshing when some of us are trying to, you know, go in our own particular directions. Matt's looking to do 60 to 100. He'll take a modern deck and turn it into an EDH deck. I just want to compare two commanders and stuff like that. But you'll actually take the time to focus as much as you can on one particular commander to examine that and really go deep on it, hence the name Knowledge Pool. So that's what's really cool about reading those series. Yeah, and it's you know, it's one of those things that... Uh, so. I'll be the first to admit that I once I once I have spent some time really mulling over a particular card, I will I have, a, I have a, do a good job of putting a deck together and recognizing synergies and potential combos and that sort of thing. But I tend to also be the kind of person that at first blush I also uh, I might miss some of the intricacies that a commander offers. Um, and several of the car, uh, articles I've actually written have been about commanders that I originally dismissed off the bat because I didn't realize how cool they could potentially be. So you've covered quite a few different commanders over the course of this series, um, things that are like more established, whether it's Raikou or Mael or some really new kind of more niche commanders, um, Galt Primal Hunger and Becca Brass come to mind. So which article and or commander has been your favorite so far? Oh, that's always tough. Because to be honest, when the way these articles tend to work for me is um, I, I try to write about the decks that I know well. And that's not always possible, but I try to write about decks that I've had for a while. I've had some time to think about. And so choosing one of them is like choosing your favorite child. But of the one, the more recent decks I've been working on in the articles that I wrote, uh, Galto is one of my favorites because it kind of falls into that category of cards that I initially ignored. And that sounds weird, because I even wrote about this. I, I, You see a 12-12, I tell you I'm a Timmy, you immediately assume that's something I'm interested in. But I also realized that it didn't have any abilities, it has a huge mana cost. I, I didn't really think about the possibilities there. And it wasn't until later on, uh, with a little bit of inspiration from a few other places, that I gave it some real thinking and uh, realized that you know, I, I it was actually my first mono green deck that I'd ever built in real life, and it's pretty cool. It worked out. It's so far, it's been working out about as well as I'd hoped, and um, th that's one of my favorites. But the one that I've been most like I was most obsessed with for the longest amount of time was uh, Yuriko from Commander 2018, which is unusual for me because she does mostly well. My take on it was doing mostly smaller things making small ninjas to kind of attack through unblockable uh, unblock like with unblockability and um it fit this really perfect niche where it was a commander i've been looking for for years and i never had i could never find the right general for it and then yuriko they spoiled her and i was like oh that fits everything i was trying to do with that deck and i just went from there so I, it's those those two really stuck out in my mind as the ones that i've had the most fun writing recently yeah. Well, so you kind of talked about it a little bit. You, you know, you had some decks that you wanted to try out, but we're waiting on the commander. 
So reading your articles, it's kind of obvious. You do, you know, you have a deck, you do a lot of trial and error deck testing with those, playing around with, the, with what's in the list. How do you measure, you know, what makes the cut, what doesn't, what gets cut out? How do you just go through that process and, and kind of evaluate just how good cards are in your decks? You know, so that's, it's honestly, okay, so I honestly wish I got to do more testing. I wish I got to, in general, I wish I got to play more Magic than I do. But when I, a lot of the way that I approach the cut process and um, deck building in general, it I when I do have the chance to test, uh, I try and take a look at the things that I, like I'll, when I'm playing, I'll notice that certain things don't curve out the way that I had hoped they would. Or um, maybe I'll draw a certain card and I'll realize that, man, it really didn't feel very good to draw that, whatever it might be. And that doesn't necessarily make a card a cut right off the bat, but it's something I do keep in mind. And if it's something that I notice is a recurring theme, card slowly becomes and enters my cut list. But one of the things that I think is uh, I tried to define the cut list when I, I have a cut list at the end of each of my articles, but I, and I tried to define it when I first introduced it. To make it clear that this isn't necessarily, it's not that these cards aren't good enough, and it's not necessarily that that this is the wrong way to build the deck by including these. It's just something that didn't end up making the cut of my deck. And with, uh, you know, I could easily see taking a different strategy that might include certain cards that get cut. I think uh, it, it really kind of comes down to personal preference, personal metagame, that sort of thing. Uh, but for me, it's a little bit of testing, a little bit of, uh, well, spending a lot of time thinking. But <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, classic fits the knowledge pool name for sure. I do, I, I do really appreciate that about your articles that you have that cuts list at the end because a lot of the time what we do in our articles is say, here's a good card, here's a good card, here's a good card. Even in our usual challenge the stats segment on the podcast, we'll be like, here's a card that people aren't playing enough of. But every time that you suggest a card that people should play, you also have to suggest cards that they shouldn't. And so it's neat to see like your thought process as you walk through the cards that you don't think necessarily deserve to make the cut for your build and to evaluate exactly those reasons why. I wanted to comment on that as well because that I had actually the same thought, particularly about making the cuts, because it's easy to add cards to decks. You can find cards all the time that you want to try. Finding cards to pull out of your decks is way, way more complicated. And that's something I really actually appreciate as well, the, the suggestions for what cards to remove. It, it's a brutal process, and uh, at least for me it is, because I, I tend to whittle my decks down from a pretty large number. Honestly, what kind of got me thinking that I should include it is um, noticing that uh, a lot of people will recommend like, certain cards to me. They'll say, why didn't you include this? Or have you thought about this card? And so at the beginning, when I first included it, it was like, yeah, I, I wanted to address up front. I have actually thought about this card, this card, and this card. Here's why I didn't include them. But I still think they might be good enough for this deck if you wanted to give them a shot. So Yeah, there are so many factors to take into account when building a pile of 100 individual cards from their like spot on the curve to their color to their color on the curve to the specific strategy that you're going for to their situational usefulness. Like, There's a ton of stuff, so it's neat to see your thought process there. I definitely appreciate it. On a related note, I mean, your articles are really super in-depth when it comes to strategy. So I'm curious, you mentioned earlier, there are some commanders that you haven't necessarily played a whole lot before. So how do you go in-depth on strategy? How do you fill up that pool of knowledge when you write about a commander that you've never actually played? My deck building process is the same for all my decks. Uh, and honestly, like when I, I'm, I'm going to describe it to you, and I know how ridiculous it might sound. And it starts with me 
looking at, like, if I look at a commander and I say this commander looks like it could have some really cool synergies going on, I'll go through and look at all the cards in that commander's color. I'm not kidding when I say all the cards. I'm talking literally all the cards. And I'll narrow it down to about 150. And I use that as kind of a skeleton of sorts. And once I have that skeleton, like I've given it my own thoughts and I've had the chance to think of, like, recognize certain synergies on my own. I'll then take it to places like EDH Rack where I can see if there's anything I missed. And there always is stuff I've missed because when you're going through that many cards, you're bound to miss stuff, uh, even obvious stuff. So I'll go to EDH Rack. I'll see if there's cool synergies I missed there. And then once I have done that, I will I tend to categorize my cards. And I find that this process helps me to make sure that I have good amounts of some of the more critical components of a deck. Um, so I tend to categorize my cards based on whether or not they ramp, whether or not they draw cards, or if they're removal, or if they're just synergy. And uh, in that categorization process, I can then look at how many of each that I have of this nebulously sized deck, and then cut from there. If I have, I don't know, 20 removal spells, I know that I don't need 20, and I can cut some of the ones that maybe aren't synergizing as well with my commander. And then from that process forward, I try and dig into the internet a little bit, see what other people have written about the commander I'm interested in, see if anybody has tried some of the cards that I'm interested in, and see if any of the other, if anybody else has written about the particular strategy that I want to employ. Uh, and if they have, I want to see if it worked, one or two. Like if there's certain cards that they say, this card doesn't look like much, but it, it needs to be in your deck because it does X. It ends up being kind of a Frankenstein's monster, but it's a little bit of everybody's testing that I try to incorporate into my decks. So you often put a lot of effort in analyzing a deck-specific categories, um, breaking down things like draw and ramp and enablers. How do you balance out the sub-themes in your deck to make sure they don't detract from the main theme of your deck while also hitting kind of the functional beats a deck needs to actually play successfully in EDH? Yeah, so that's a bit of a challenge. Uh, it's something that I struggle with from deck to deck. And I'm not always certain I get it right, and sometimes I'm, I'm sure I have gotten it wrong. Uh, but Oh, come on, man. The podcast is a place to sell yourself. You should tell you I'm always right. <laughs> I am a wizard at mixing perfectly <laughs> the components deck I Deck brewing expert. If you play any of my decks, they will only function perfectly. But so essentially the way I kind of approach things is that um, a lot of the decks that I brew, I consider with my meta in, in mind. But at the same time, I try like my meta is pretty, um, it fits the 75% theory pretty well. And so I know that if I'm building for my meta, it will fit a lot of people's metas. And one of the things that like, when it comes to the ramp draw removal and synergies and that sort of stuff, it really depends on how much synergy the particular commander demands some of the commanders that I want to build around. So I just recently wrote about Tatiova and did a land episode. And I wanted to have as much, as many ways to put lands into play as possible because that just keeps the engine running. And that's necessary for a Tatiova deck, in my opinion. But then I also wrote about Tristani. And for Tristani, life gain's great and making tokens is great. But you also don't need to have like a crazy density of either of those things. And so you have a lot more room for removal and that sort of stuff. And so it kind of depends on what I'm building. I will make some exceptions if the commander is very engine driven and be a little bit harsher about the amounts that I include if, if I have the room to. 
I actually really dig that answer. A lot of the times that I'll go searching around for people's deck building theories online, they say, oh, you should have X number of removal spells, this much ramp, this much card draw, this much whatever in a certain category. But you're totally right, depending on the availability, the the actual capability of your commander, like there are certain things that you can actually forgive a little bit. There's room that you can make. If your commander itself is a destructive killing machine, then you can maybe afford a little less removal. If your commander draws a ton, a ton, a ton of cards, then you can actually shore that up in your deck and replace it with other stuff that you need. So there, there is no hard and set rule. And it's a good thing to remember that. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's actually something that I struggle with at first, because when I first started really get into getting into Commander and building decks and trying to build them better, I really did my best to stick to those rules. And the first few times that I deviated from those, it felt wrong. It was like, you know, you always hear that, like, I think certain people will say, like, you need 10 removal spells and you need 10 ramp spells and 10 draw spells or whatever it might be. And like you said, I, I for the longest time, I followed that pretty strictly. But then, like, in a Tatiova deck, you're going to be drawing with every single land you play. So I don't need a ton of extra draw as long as I can cast Tatiova. And I've got tons of tons of land, so I should be able to cast her. So, yeah, it just kind of, like I said, like, it just adjusts. And it was something I had to get used to. And those are really good guidelines. They're definitely a good base for people to start off with. Like, you should shoot for these if you're a little newer to the deck building experience. These are good goals to have. They're good signposts to make sure that your deck actually can play in the game. Uh, But yeah, you're right. There are totally times when it's like a level up moment to deviate from them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I Whenever I do build a deck that's like my Tristani deck that does have those, like, I think it more or less follows that numbers pretty closely. It... It's, it's really hard to deal with. People have a lot of trouble taking it down, and it's fun to play. So <laughs> so one of my favorite articles that you've done was your, your Riku of the Two Reflections. You kind of spent half the article, if not the entire article, uh, gushing about a, a signature card in their epic experiment. I, I don't know if, I don't remember if you use the term hidden commanders or not, um, but it just felt like the deck was so centered around that card. Have you ever done any hidden commanders or anything where, you know, the deck is is set up around one specific card like that. You know, actually, that process was something completely new for me, and it was kind of fun too because I I haven't I hadn't actually done hidden commanders. I was familiar with the concept, but I hadn't had the right inspiration to do it myself. Uh, I actually got the idea from the Commanders Brew. Um, it's another podcast, and they did it with a different commander. Um, I changed my list quite a bit because I. Well, I do things differently. It was, I mean, it was different for me for several reasons. Like, I'd never done a Hidden Commanders deck before. As a whole, I've not been a huge fan of spell-slinging strategies. I've tried one of them in the past, and it, it just wasn't my thing. Um, and so this was kind of taking me into that territory, too. And I also tend to brew my decks without too many tutors. So when you're building a deck around a specific card that isn't your commander... Tutors are a necessity, and it made it a challenge for me. I almost had to make another category when I was doing my mix of spells, and one of it, and that category was tutors. And um, in those ways, it was very different from anything I'd built so far. Um, but as a predominantly teamer player, the uh, spell-based ramp package was nothing new to me, and getting to play as many ramp spells as I wanted was a really good feeling. <laughs> it gets the, the Timmy and me all excited. Sure. Well, and especially as you mentioned at the top of the show, you like doing the big dumb stuff on the table and epic experiment, especially in a Riku deck that can copy it. 
that's uh seems to fit the bill pretty well that is and it is i have gotten to play it a few times since i've written the article it does the biggest and dumbest stuff speaking of cards from the new ravnica set the like the new storm card the blue red like six drop Oh, a thousand year storm? Yeah. I don't know how good that thing actually is, but I want to try it so badly. <laughs> I mean, I I think if, if somebody's silly enough to let you untap with that, I think you deserve to win. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> really quick, Dana or Matt, you know, following on that whole hidden commanders thing, and that could probably be a topic for a future show, but have you guys ever tried your hand at a hidden commander in the deck as opposed to in the command zone? I have 0%. not. Yeah, I have not either. I It, it feels a bit like top-down deck building, though, which is something we can probably talk about here in a little bit. Hey, a good segue. But before then, what could we do? (laughs) Before then, we could go head-to-head. This is the segment where we're going to be challenging data against data. We're going to see if people can guess which cards are more popular than the other. So, Scott, as our guest of honor, would you mind starting us off with head-to-head, naming some cards that we'll have to guess, see if we know our knowledge pool really well. That was awkwardly phrased. But regardless, can you start us off on head-to-head? Absolutely. And so given everything I've told you so far, I had to bring you one that has to do with ramp. And so I want you to put the following three in the order from most played to least played. And those three cards are Mirari's Wake, Zendikar Resurgent, and Mana Reflection. Mana doublers. I love it. All three of those enchantments are awesome mana doubling enchantments. And I have no idea what order they're in. Um, I, I would guess least popular would be Mana Reflection. It's never had a reprint. It's the oldest and it's the most expensive. Middle, I will go with Zendikar Resurgent. It's new and the cheapest of the three, but it's seven mana, which is a good amount. And most played, I will go with Mirari's Wake. I know it was in at least one pre-con, although so was Resurgent, I believe. But it's been around long enough. It's got a reputation, so... I feel like that's the sequence. It's going to be least amount of decks for Reflection uh, in the middle for Resurgent and most decks for Mari's Wake. I'm going to counter that and I'm going to flip-flop your one and two. (laughs) I'm going to disallow your... Fluster Storm, your disallow. Your statement. I think think I'm actually with Matt on this one. The the fact that Zendikar Resurgent is mono green and also a lot more of a budget option, I think would make it beat out Mirari's Wake, which can only show up in decks that are green and white. But I do agree with your mana reflection, since it's very expensive and a little older, past the point where, I don't know, that's always the tricky thing, isn't it? Where there are cards that are old and therefore have had more time to get data on the site, but if they're you know a, a little older and therefore very expensive, they won't have much of a showing. I think that might be the case for mana reflection, but I'm with Matt that Zendikar Resurgent, as a monocolored card, is probably going to be in the top spot. Scott, what's the real answer? So I was with Matt and Joey for this one, too. That was my thought uh, before I actually looked this up. You should be. And, uh, it's a good place to be. <laughs> Dana was right, though. Uh, I am uh... a golden god. <laughs> so Mirari's Wake wins with 18,255 decks. Zendikar Resurgent is 15,418 decks. And Mana Reflection is 6969 decks. And... Honestly, of those three, the one that surprises me most is the Mana Reflection. Um, and I I know how expensive it is, and I know it's old, but it's less than half as... It's less than half, right? Yeah, less than half as played as the other two. And it's also the true Mana Doubler. It actually doubles the Mana versus just making one extra. Exactly. It can go into, like, if you have artifacts that are adding Mana or anything else. I was talking with uh, Mason. Or Nykthos. Yeah. yeah Nykthos are disgusting. 
Like, or that Amara deck, maybe, if you've got, like, a Cryptolith right, and then suddenly all your creatures tap for two mana instead. It just sounds oh. really good. <laughs> yeah, man. So that's my pitch. Mana Reflection needs a reprint. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think Mana Reflections is one of those cards that it's old. And, like, we say how cards are old, and they should have time to kind of accrue numbers over time, but I think Mana Reflections just being a little, probably a little more on the unknown side, just as far as compared to the other two, it's too old, so people have kind of forgotten about it at the same time. I think Forgotten that might about be... it or don't know it exists in the first place. Exactly, yeah. I think that might be the issue with Mana Reflections. Yeah, but all three are really bonkers. You should not let people untap with those either. It's a, it's a rough time after those land. Matt, what's your head-to-head? All right, so... My head-to-head is going to be inspired by a banned card in the format. We have Emrakul, the Aeon's Torn, who everyone knows Annihilator's not fun. It's very broken. Uh, Banded Commander, Emrakul is. So I'm going to ask you guys what you think the top three ranked are going to be as far as the, the Eldrazi Titans that are legal. So your options are going to be Kozlek, Butcher of Truth, uh, which is a 10-mana 12-12, uh, indestructible. When you cast Kozlek, you draw four cards. Has Annihilator four. And then whenever uh, Kozlek is put into the graveyard, shuffle him back into your library. We also have a different uh, version. I, I do have to interrupt that version of Kozlek. I don't think any of the Kozleks are actually. Kozlek, yeah, you're right. It is not indestructible. I was I was looking, I was looking ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, Ulamog, the Ceaseless Hunger, is indestructible, though. He's also a 10-mana 10-10. Well, he's not also 10-10. He is a 10-10. When you cast Ulamog, you can exile two target permanents, and whenever Ulamog attacks, the defending player exiles the top 20 cards of his or her library. Exiles them. And then we also have Ulamog Infinite Gyre, or Gyre. How do you want to say that, Joey? Gyre. Gyre. So Ulamog the Infinite Gyre is your third option of the top three played Titans, which costs 11 mana for a 10-10. Whenever you cast this spell, destroy target permanent indestructible with Annihilator 4. And whenever Ulamog, the infinite Jire, is put into the graveyard from anywhere, its owner shuffles it into her library. Matt, I believe I, I believe the genesis of that word is Swedish, and it's pronounced with a Y. It's infinite Yire. Oh infinite Yire. All right, so there are a lot of Eldrazi Titans. There are two more uh, as well, the other Kozilek and the other new Emrakul. Uh, but we know that those aren't among the big three that are showing up. So it's between the ones you mentioned. I'm probably going to go with the OG Kozilek that draws you a bunch of cards. Think that that's just generally more useful than the 10 or 11 mana ones that destroy permanence because you can get a destroy permanent effect on like a three mana spell like a Vindicate. So I think people are probably more drawn to the card advantage. That's going to be my guess for Kozilek. Also, a lot of folks are really abusing the the hit the graveyard and shuffle your stuff back into your deck trigger when they're trying to like mill themselves out with infinite combos and get rock monster, for example, just totally abusing that ability. So I think that that gives him a bit of extra push too. So that's your guess for the most popular one? That is the most popular? I think so. I, that, that's my guess. I'm not confident in it, though. He is the butcher of truth, after all, so I could be entirely wrong. What do you well, guys think? you're butchering this explanation. I, I've, I've seen multiple Kozilek decks using that Kozilek at the head of them, but I don't know if I've ever seen him actually in a deck. And I think, like Mana Reflection, I think he's too old and he's too expensive to be the most popular. I think it's going to be one of the two new ones. And I'm going to guess new Kozilek just because he does something when he hits the field versus Ulamog who has to swing for the most part. I guess he exiles two things too, but I'm just going to guess new Kozilek because 
It's the cheapest of all of them. I think I think New Ulamog is still closing. New Ulamog is not an option. New Ulamog is oh, not okay. one of the so, top so, three. So it's old Ulamog. I, I think it's going to be New Kozilek just because it's the cheapest of the bunch and it's still an effective card. Or New Kozilek. I'm sorry. New Kozilek is not an option. New Kozilek is redo. not an option is what you're No, saying. The, the, the three options are Old Kozilek, New then, Ulamog, then, then Old new Ulamog. New Ulamog. New Ulamog. Yes, indeed. Okay. Scott, what do you think? So, okay, so I also have a soft spot in my heart for New Lamog. Um, I like the fact that it doesn't shuffle itself back into the Bits library, which I'm sure that there are decks that want to abuse that in some way, but I personally just want to reanimate him if possible. Yeah, man, after my own heart. Exactly. But, I don't know. So, my thought process here is that the Ulamogs are great if you can't remove stuff very well. But Kozilek's going to be better if you can't draw things, and I'm thinking it's going to be Kozilek because there's more decks that want to draw cards and more cards than more decks that want to remove things. So I'm going right. Kozilek. So Kozilek, two votes for Kozilek, one vote for Nulamog, correct? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we'll we'll build up from the bottom just to get this out of the way. But Dana, you're wrong. Nulamog last place, ten thousand five hundred nine, followed by Oldamog. The Infinite Yire coming in at 10,794, so only about 300 decks difference there. And then finally, Kozlek Butcher of Truth, 12,019 decks to its name. Well, it's in that many decks, I guess. Scott, digital high five. Yeah. How, how is it digital when I heard a sound? Well, it's I, I was just clapping. <laughs> it's called a self-five. A self five, yeah, that, that's self a lot lackluster than a digital high five. Come on, let me have my moment. Well, I'm happy that I have finally guessed one of these correctly. I like winning bets, even if I can't necessarily win them against you. But I do think that that the the new, excuse me, not the new goes like the old goes like his ability to draw cards and that abuse that people can use with him triggering the graveyard. I think that that does play a lot into it. But regardless, all of the titans are pretty sick. And for the record, I'm glad that Emrakul is banned. That's just me. I also like so far that we've been discussing some pretty big stuff. We've got mana doublers from Scott. We've got Eldrazi Titans from Matt. And I'm going to be continuing the big stuff theme here with my head-to-head, which is between Consuming Aberration versus Lord of Extinction. Specifically, I'm actually looking at one of my pet decks here. So we're talking within the scope of just a Mimeoplasm deck. Because Mimeoplasm can eat two creatures from graveyards and then get the abilities of one, but bigger equal to the power of the other. So these two giants are super useful in that deck because you can steal their power, which they have even in the graveyard. Consuming Aberration is a Demir card that's three blue and a black, a five mana star star horror, and its power and toughness are each equal to the number of cards in your opponent's graveyard. Plus, if it's on the battlefield, whenever you cast a spell, it will mill your opponents. As opposed to Lord of Extinction, also five mana, but Golgari for a star star elemental, and its power and toughness are equal to all of the cards in all graveyards. Which one of those is seeing more play in a Mimeoplasm deck? In a Mimeoplasm deck specifically, man, I'm going to guess Consuming Aberration. I think it's a little bit easier to make it some disgusting out-of-control number by itself. You're not just entirely reliant on late in the game abusing a Mimeoplasm. It's like easier to cast on its own versus just getting in the yard and copying it. So... I'm going to guess Aberration. It also has the advantage of being, you know, there's kind of the recency bias going on where it's a newer card. So I think those two factors probably add up to it being more popular. 
So I'm going to go with Consuming Aberration 2, also for the recency bias and also the price. Um, I think the Lord of Extinction is something like $20. Uh, yeah, so I, I think it's a little bit more expensive. I acknowledge the fact that Lord of Extinction has maybe a better potential to combo out and kill people right off the bat. But um, the reason I'm going with Consuming Aberration, I brewed a Mimeoplasm deck myself that had to do with milling other people and consuming aberration was the all-star in that so that's where i'm at matt what about you i'm gonna make it a three for three uh, i think consuming aberration for all the reasons that have been mentioned already and like scott said lord of extinction is kind of expensive and i know we're talking about mimeoplasm specifically but consuming aberration was brought to the forefront because it was in a couple pre-cons um, so I think people just remember that quite a bit more than just, you know, having been printed quite a bit more recently, too. So uh, three for three on Consuming Aberration. All righty. Yeah, they are both definitely impressive beasts. I love reviving, you know, these things, just making them huge presences on the battlefield. But I especially like using them in Mimeoplasm, where I can make him a copy of Walking Ballista and then use like the... 98 different plus one counters that I get from a Lord of Extinction and then use those with the Walking Ballista ability. It's super gross. Absolutely love it. But you guys are correct. Consuming Aberration ekes it out here. Also a really powerful beast. And it is deservedly so. Consuming Aberration shows up in 44% of Mimeoplasm decks and Lord of Extinction shows up in a still respectable 37%. And I think you guys totally hit it, hit it, uh, the nail on the head there. The the budget, the recency, that definitely helps consuming aberration. And it also helps fuel the strategy in the first place by milling your opponents if it's in play, which, you know, that never hurts. Mimiplasm wants more targets to eat. So I think you guys definitely nailed it. Dana, what is your head-to-head? I am going to go the other direction. This is not going to be giant, impressive cards, but little little tiny cards. I've been kind of looking at friends' decks lately, doing, you know, a little bit of tech work, and I see... Pretty frequently um, in decks that are running Fog that have access to black or white, you know, people that have quite a bit of green mana uh, in their deck and less black or white stuff, it's easier to leave a black or white mana free for that Fog than it is to leave a green one free when you're, you know, casting predominantly green spells in your deck. So I often suggest, well, just replace your Fog with a Darkness or with a Holy Day, both of which are Fogs and black and white respectively. So... Of those two Fog variants, which are basically clones of the OG Fog, prevent all combat damage that will be dealt at this turn at instant speed for a single mana, which shows up in more commander decks? Darkness, the black variant, or Holy Day, the white variant? Mm, Holy Day. I'm going to guess Just Holy... because I didn't, I didn't remember that Darkness was a thing. <laughs> I'm going to go with Holy Day because uh, we talk about those Turbo Fog decks. They're almost always banned... Angus McKenzie almost always too, so I'm going to go with Holy Day. But at the same time, those decks will often have other options, whereas Mono Black doesn't necessarily, so that argument could work in the reverse. Now I'm doubting myself. Scott, what do you think? I'm going to go with Darkness. Uh, so Darkness, I think, has two printings. Uh, none of them recent. But I think... Uh, I don't know. I, I skulk the... like prices on some certain cards and i i've noticed the darkness moved recently a little bit and that's that's honestly where i'm coming from with that i feel like people recognize it a little bit and whenever i do brew black and white decks and i look on edh rec darkness tends to be one of the cards that's in the top suggestions so they're both very very close however matt and joey are correct holy day is ahead it's at about 1100 decks 
and darkness is in about 800. All righty. Well, that's pretty respectable. But I do think if you are playing a deck that is playing a fog effect and it's it's heavily skewing towards green cards, you should look at diversifying to one of those other options just because it tends to be easier to leave mana free. I also would have thought maybe darkness would be ahead because I think there's a couple other semi-fog variants in white and there really isn't in black. So it's root darkness. Is darkness is the only game in town, whereas Holy Day's got a little bit of competition. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That's kind of what I was thinking to myself just there when I mentioned it to Matt too. Like there aren't a ton of things in black to do. The best that I can think of is sudden spoiling, yeah. the split second card that turns an opponent's board into a bunch of ability list zero twos. And aside from that, I can't think of much. So I think darkness is a really good like secret option to sneak out on people. It's kind of like having a white counterspell, which there are like only two that exist, like mana tie, for example, and that like totally takes opponents by surprise. And I think darkness has some really good viability for exactly that reason i so, have seen really neat one i've seen turn one soul rings get manatized on more than one occasion Ugh. i've seen turn one terramorphic expanse get stifled ouch what yeah it what? was crushing actually oh my goodness it was pretty messed up Alrighty, yeah. let's move now we've got another topic that we want to get to and that is top down deck building one of the main features of scott's knowledge pool series is the way that he focuses on you know top down deck building that is building with the win condition in mind first and foremost so scott we wanted to get your opinions on how to build a deck when thinking from the top down yeah so that's actually um it's one of the approaches that i've grown to adopt for building most of my decks and the reason being is that i like to build my decks with synergy in mind but I notice, I you know, it's the kind of thing that I notice online a lot. People will ask the question, my deck isn't winning. I always stall out at certain points. Or I'll be talking with a friend and they'll tell me that, you know, I built this awesome deck. It does all these cool things, but it doesn't have a way to actually win the game. And it's the kind of thing you might not even realize you can't win the game until you're in the game. And then at that point, it's too late. Um, or maybe you thought you could win the game and it's uh, what you're doing is actually not strong enough. So what I like to do when I build mine is I, I tend to select a commander first that I'm interested on. And when I'm looking through the cards that are particularly synergistic with that commander, I then try and identify any of those cards that I think when combined or if there's a particular theme, what it is that that deck wants to be doing to win the game. Well, like for instance, if I'm building uh, the Galta deck, I want to make sure that I have access to Galta all the time, if Galta is going to be my primary win condition. And so I'm going to build Galta in mind, which means that I, I'm building in with cards that are high power. But uh, if for something a little bit less um, straightforward, like I brought up the Tristani deck earlier, Tristani doesn't necessarily give you a straightforward way to win the game. And so for me, I looked at Tristani and said, you know, I could copy small 1-1 tokens with Tristani's populate ability, but it's probably worth a lot more if I can copy a sick 5-5 worm. And so that's what I'll end up doing is I'll look, I'll narrow down a few cards in each or each of my lists that these are the cards that I plan to win the game with. Game with. Here are a few cards that I need to support that, uh, support that win condition. And... The other thing that I like to do, too, when I'm building a deck this way is after I've identified what my primary win condition will be, I then build in a, oh, I guess I've heard it called an alternate win condition. Um, essentially, I look at the same synergies and I see if there's any way I can include maybe a multi-part combo, some kind of backdoor way to win the game if my primary win condition is shut down. And... Um, 
That way, so like, let's say again, let's say I'm playing Tristani. I played a lot of tokens, but then my opponent wraths me, and then they wrath me again, and then they wrath me again. I probably don't have a lot of tokens now. My Tristani probably costs a lot, but if I have a way to combo in some way, I can still win this game. And I think having a little bit of both those things, they it lets you keep your deck synergistic, lets you build around your commander in a way that doesn't feel like you're just shoving in good cards, while also giving you a good chance to win the game and also stay in a game long, like all for the long haul. Yeah, there is nothing worse than like a, a game that won't end frankly and i think that that's a really easy trap for us as commander players to fall into where we just want to play with all of the cool stuff that we know does some pretty cool stuff with our commander it synergizes in xyz way but then when it comes to actually finalizing and like finishing the whole board off we can't pull the trigger and that just makes rather than a fun experience with all of your cool interactions it makes it kind of painstaking and everyone's just like waiting for your deck to like actually finally go from zero to 60 and close it out that's it's super not fun for anyone I, it's been the case i've met several players i think actually who if faced with a card that said choose one either draw five cards or win the game they would draw five cards and that's just not cool so it's good to keep in mind like your win condition what your deck is actually building towards not just what your deck is building around right i know that feeling too because like i there have been games where i've noticed like Hey, I can win this game right now. It's turn six. Uh, game, I mean, we've been playing for maybe 20, 30 minutes, and this game's over. They don't, they maybe don't know it yet, but I want to keep playing. So I understand that feeling to some extent, but I mean, sometimes, I mean, a game's got to end. That's, <laughs> and if you've found a way to, you want to have those ways to get in there, even if you sometimes get there quicker than other people. Yeah, I, I personally don't really build top down, but I do think anymore particularly the last you know year or two when i do build a deck i am definitely conscious of the how does this deck win question in a way maybe i wasn't a few years ago um so even if i'm not doing that top down building i'm still asking that question and making sure i have an answer to it and i i totally agree not enough people maybe think that thing through and understand what how they're going to close out a game yeah and i think it's this fine line too because how I just mentioned a scenario, maybe you didn't intend to win by turn six, but you can. I noticed that a lot of the time there's two different mindsets. There's the person that's built their their deck that's going to kill you as fast as possible. They've really considered their win condition, and they're they're gonna they're gonna execute it as quick as possible. And then you have the people that really haven't, and they're just there to kind of dirtle. And when I build my decks, I I want to be somewhere in the middle of that. I think. Because I, I want, like, for me, a lot of the joy of Commander is having the time to sit there, enjoy the company of the people I'm with. I want to see what everybody's decks can do. Because, I mean, most people put considerable effort into their Commander decks, and most Commanders do some pretty neat things. And I want to see that. And so if um, I kind of want to ride the line a little bit of being focused enough that my deck can win... Uh, when I want it to, but not so focused that it doesn't do anything else. And I think that's that's trying that's where I try and go with my series uh, for the most part. That that is a tough line to ride too. If you hold victory in mind, it definitely helps navigate your deck building and make sure that 
you know, you are prepared for all game experiences. Like if you are ahead in the game, then you want to make sure that you have ways to close that game out. But you also need to keep a bit of restraint in mind as well, because if you do hold victory exclusively in mind, it can result in actually pretty unfun decks that play just the same every time, like you mentioned. If you build, you know, that you're just trying to get to your Sanguine and Exquisite Blood combo as fast as possible, or your Helm of Obedience combo as fast as possible, or your Mike and Trike combo as fast as possible, that's not necessarily fun for you or for the rest of the table sometimes. So finding that balance is really, really hard. Dana, Matt, do you guys have experiences with those, with trying to find a balance between your deck synergy and the fun stuff it wants to do, but also like maintaining an actual goalpost? I mean, I absolutely have. Like I've mentioned my Gliss of the Trader deck on the show before. Um, that's a big problem with that deck is, you know, I can't necessarily consistently count on creature beats to get through for the win. So I've had to come up with other ways in that deck. Um, I didn't really like doing a Mindslaver lock. So what I've kind of resigned myself to is because the deck is so grindy and it's such a, a late game beast that tends to you know be the last cockroach uncrushed. When I get to that point in the game, I can just cast an Exsanguinate or a Tormented Hellfire for you know twenty or something and win the game. And maybe that's not the most dramatic way to to take a victory, but like you have to do something at that point. So that's just what I've accepted. <laughs> my win condition is, is I outlast everybody and then blow everybody up with a big uh, X spell like that. Outlast, the Obzon would be very proud of you. Yeah. Matt, what about, what, what do you think? So, I mean, a lot of my decks that I, I build, especially for my articles, they're all centered around competitive decks. They're, there's decks that have won like Splinter Twin and Modern or, you know, Stasis, whatever it's been. So they're always, you know, tending to have that, that hint of competitive, you know, we want to win whether it's a two-card combo or anything. Actually, uh, on my Bruticlad article that I wrote a couple weeks ago, uh, I had Splinter Twin, I had Pestermite, I had uh, Exarch, and I had Kiki-Jiki in there, but I had no ways to really to tutor for it, to, to draw rapid fire. It wasn't a, a turbo combo deck like a lot of people probably would do in that situation. And there were some comments even in, in the, the comment section saying, why don't you just cut all the, the nonsense and just focus on the Splinter Twin combo? And for me, it's it's more, I want to have that in there because I want to have a way to win the game. It's the same reason I play like Triumph of the Hordes, for example, and, and green decks, just because games have to end. Uh, and so I, I have those in there as kind of an insurance policy in case, you know, whatever I want to have fun doing doesn't work, then I can just, you know, break down and, and win on the spot. So if I'm playing some of those two card combos, anything like that, I try to not have any ways to tutor for them. And tutoring is always a choice, too. I think we've kind of talked about it a couple times here is you don't have to tutor for the same things over and over again. You can tutor for, you know, something that might stimulate gameplay in that game instead of something that's going to win the game on the spot. So it's finding that balance. Just it's all about the player. It's not not the fault of the deck for for comboing off. It's the player for choosing to combo out. So just finding that balance. If I if I have those combos in there, I try not to tutor for them or don't just just don't put tutors in the deck. Um, unless that's the goal and I just want that deck to be more competitive. There is, this has always been a, a bit of a, a struggle in deck building for me, I think. And that is like the ideas of building a deck around a commander versus choosing a commander for a deck. And this is a discussion that I think we've had in a show previous where like, do you choose the commander and then, you know, just go just the stuff that would synergize with that? Or do you have cards that you know you want to play and then find a suitable leader for that 99? Scott, how do you approach that particular philosophy? You know, it's actually interesting. It kind of, I, I guess for me, it kind of goes along with the like hidden commander sort of thing. Um, I 
when I build my decks, it's almost always with the commander in mind. Um, in fact, I can't really think of a situation outside of that that epic experiment deck where I did build um, where I did build a deck around um, a non commander card. And I guess for me, I, and I know this isn't a great answer to that question, but for me, it, it really kind of um, the way I like to approach the format and as a whole is I like to find the commanders that I find are fun and I like that I get to have them all the time. And so I, I then um, purposely build my decks around them. As far as having like a specific suite of cards and then fitting a commander to it, that's honestly kind of an uncharted charted territory for me to come up with a suite of cards and fit a commander to it. And I think the reason being is that uh, in the past when I've done that sort of thing, like I, I wanted to do like a blink deck or whatever, um, I end up putting too many cards that are maybe just good in the deck. And that's maybe a fallacy of my deck building. And it's it's probably an approach to deck building that I should try at some point to see how I how it works. Because I think it'd be cool to try something different. But uh, at the moment, don't have a ton of experience, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so on a related subject, I know that you also wanted to quickly discuss something about avoiding homogeneity. Scott, you had a, a Dromoka example that you had uh, brought before uh, the cast started. And I just wanted you to get the opportunity to share that, too, because I think it was a really good pitch. Oh, yeah. It, well, it's just something I, I've been kind of mulling over lately and talking with some, some friends about um, without getting into a lot like a too much more about it. Essentially... Something I've been noticing a lot is that players have become very conscious of what is optimized, what cards are considered suboptimal. And we tend to, or like I've noticed that players will tend to, um, instead of considering the context for a certain card or a certain commander or whatever it might be, they instead will recommend something that's better. Uh, and I think that's just, uh, at least for me when deck building, like I, I recognize that. Like when I build a deck and I build around like a certain synergy, I recognize that there might be better win conditions in the color that I'm in. But the example that I brought up originally was that like I'd seen a post a long time ago. It was somebody that had was on Reddit. They wanted help with a Dramoka commander deck. I believe it was the Dragons of Tarkir Dramoka. And they wanted recommendations for their deck. And I feel like 90% of the comments instead were people saying, no, you don't want to play Dramoka. Dramoka's not very good. And um, I just remember thinking, uh, looking that that comment thread over, being a little frustrated and just being like, that that wasn't the question that was asked. It wasn't asked, is this the best green-white commander? Is this the best way to win the game? Is this the best uh, strategy I could be doing? It was, how do I make this particular commander better? And I, I guess when I approach this format, I, I really feel like, outside of some... Uh, very few corner cases that you could build almost any deck and with some good deck building practices, you could come up with something that's good enough for certain metas. And if you know what your particular situation is, that helps. So like my recommendation for that, I think I commented on that person's post and I said something along the lines of, you should check out EDH Rex post on Jamoka and it will recommend a lot of really good cards to you. I guess it's not entirely related to the top-down deck building perspective, but it was just something that I've noticed more and more. Especially when approaching new cards, when approaching new commanders, I think an open mind and maybe an understanding of context helps a lot and helps us understand why certain decisions are made, why certain win conditions are chosen, 
and maybe why we're excited about certain things and not other things. I, it's, it's a larger conversation, but it was just something that I, I've been thinking about recently. All right, folks, neat discussion. Top-down deck building is definitely a pretty interesting topic, but we've got one last thing that we have to do, and that is challenging the stats. Sometimes we take a look at EDH rec and we don't necessarily agree with everything we see there. So, finally, let's challenge those statistics. Scott, again, as our guest of honor, please start us off challenging the stats. So... My challenge the stats card was actually Mana Reflection, and I didn't realize we were going to talk about it at the time. But kind of along, uh, kind of along the same lines, uh, my challenge the stat is going to be stats is going to be Vernal Bloom. And uh, for those of you unfamiliar, Vernal Bloom is three and a green. It was la- uh, it's been printed in a few sets, and I think the most recent is Eighth Edition. Yeah, 8th edition is the most recent. Okay, cool. Yeah, whenever what it says is whenever a forest is tapped for mana, its controller adds green days of her mana pool. And with the mana doublers we talked about earlier, this one is cheaper than even Mirari's Wake by a single mana. I know it only works for forests. I should point out that this card is only in 2,272 decks. And uh, I know it uh, counts all forests for both players, so it's symmetrical. But in a mono green deck, I feel like it could be particularly good, and I've found that to be true when playing my Galta deck. Um, <laughs> I feel like it could be good. I feel like it is good. No one else is going to abuse that nearly as much as you are. Oh, it's very good. I, <laughs> I was selling myself short playing that on like turn three or turn yeah turn three, uh, turn four. You untap and play Galta, and there's there's not many people that can do this like match that. <laughs> I, I played a mono green, and I never regret casting it. It's always a bomb. Yeah, people are always really reticent to include cards that could potentially help out an opponent, but I definitely think that's an incorrect move. A lot of folks, for example, are uh, really hesitant to include Horn of Greed in a landfall deck, and Horn of Greed allows you to draw more cards whenever you play lands, and if you've got a bunch of stuff like Oracle of Multaya and Exploration and all of them, then like that means that you're going to draw a bunch more cards and everyone else is only drawing one card per turn. That rate is totally super worth it, but everyone's really afraid to, and I think Vernal Bloom falls into that same category. Yeah, it doubles the forest and stuff, but if you've got the most forests, it's best for you. So I do like that pick a lot. I'm going to move now to my head-to-head, and that is in a Yannette Cryptic Sovereign deck. This is the really cool new Sphinx, the odd Sphinx Lady, who lets you cast free spells off the top of your deck if they're odd. And one of my favorite new spells for this weird Sphinx is the card Discombobulate. It's a four-mana blue instant that says counter-target spell, look at the top four cards of your library, and then put them back in any order. This is just a perfect card for both Yenet and Amanatu, who like to manipulate the top of their deck, and Discombobulate especially lets you keep protection up for your Yenet while also manipulating the next card that she'll get to play for free. I think it's perfect, but it doesn't show up on her page at all, which I think is just wrong. So folks should definitely play the card Discombobulate, because it's just Discombobulating. And it's fun to say. It's a fun word. Very, very much. Uh, Matt, what's your challenge the stats? So my challenge the stats is a... Well, you might say it's new. It's Crush Contraband from Guilds of Ravnica. As of today, it is currently in one deck on EDHREC.com. People haven't had very much time, obviously, to put this in decks, get their hands on it. But I was incredibly impressed with how it played out at the pre-release. And I know it's obviously very different from Commander, but in a format where all the Boros decks that I was playing against, they're playing, you know, Boros Locket, and then they're playing some arrest effects like Demotion or anything like that. It was almost always a two-for-one, and that was in Limited. So in Commander, where you're always going to have way more targets, 
Uh, it's still an instant. It's not limited. You know, we, we made a lot of comparisons to Return to Dust with this card. Single white, both cost four mana. Um, but th this always is a two for one. But I don't know if this is going to replace Return to Dust in all of my decks, but I know it's going to at least, at the at the very, very least, supplement uh, what Return to Dust is doing because it's it was just always very, very good. And I think only one deck very much underplayed at this point. <laughs> Hardly fair. We've barely got any it's numbers on it. It's totally fair. <laughs> but I will have you know that there are some cards that have eight decks to their name. <laughs> oh my goodness. What were you about to say, Scott? Oh, no. You know, it's funny you bring that up because that was actually one of the things I was considering for my um, head-to-head and um, was actually that card. Well... I didn't want to choose that card because it only did have one deck. But how do you think? Of, what do you think about that card in comparison to something like Forsake the Worldly? That also, it's one mana less. It exiles only a single thing, but you also have the option to cycle it. To cycle it, yeah. Um, I was actually, I really liked Forsake the Worldly. I I like all the, like the common uncommon utility kind of spells. I know we've done a couple set reviews here, and we spend a lot of our time talking about the big expensive cards, the flashy ones that are obvious for Commander, but. You know, my playing background where I, I played a lot of competitive, I like those kind of filler cards that, you know, you don't ever think of. But then, you know, those are always the 97th, 98th, 99th cards that you're putting in the deck. So I don't know. I don't know quite yet. I think Crush Contraband is probably going to be worth the extra mana because you're rarely not going to have another target. Right. That's always my argument against um, Forsake the Worldly is in Commander, if you don't have a legitimate target to hit with it you probably are doing so well or so far ahead that it's not going to matter drawing one card. You're probably winning the game at that point anyway. Hmm. That's a good evaluation of it. And in terms of Crush Contraband, for me, not that I have many white decks, but it's an easy swap out for that over Return to Dust. I know that Return to Dust has some flexibility, but only if you cast it on your main phase. And I like the flexibility of instant speed so much more than the flexibility of any two enchantments or any two artifacts mixing and matching that way. I just think that Crush Contraband, it it, it would strike me as a, a pretty simple swap out right there. So I, I do like that pick, even if I'm going to razz you for the fact that we haven't had enough time for it to breathe. Oh, no, the yeah. The, the one deck was completely facetious. Um, right now, currently Assassin's Trophy, go figure... Uh, as the number one set or number one card in the set at 26 decks. But I mean, obviously, we've only had opening weekend. We've only had the pre-release. So not people have had or not a lot of time for people to, you know, acquire these new cards. Completely irrelevant. So the, the data as of right now, you know, we talk about early returns. It doesn't mean a whole lot after a, a whopping three days. <laughs> Matt just wants opportunities to talk about his uh, his green and white Selesnya cards. So you're dang right. Very I good do. move there, Matt. <laughs> Dana, how about we finish up with yours? Certainly. Um, my card is a one mana sorcery that appeared in Magic Origins, Magmatic Insight, and it basically says, as an additional cost to cast a spell, discard a card. Excuse me, discard a land and draw two cards. So you get to draw two. For one mana, if you pitch a land, or you have to pitch a land, basically. It's part of the cost. It's only in 844 decks in EDH rec, which I think is too few for one. Um, I think being able to get rid of that extra mountain you don't need to draw two cards in red or in Boros is really, really good. Uh, my main objection, though, is it's only in 2% of Lord Windgrace decks. And that's a deck where discarding the land to your graveyard has almost no penalty because his minus ability lets you bring that land back into And in that deck... His minus ability lets you bring two lands back from your graveyard to play, so that downside is almost not a downside. Uh, I think it's 
just a really, really good card, and I think it should be in more decks, and it definitely should be in more Lord Windgrace decks, where it's fantastic value at one mana. It's literally his plus two ability. Yes. Yeah, I mean, never hurts to get additional copies of that. It is, I haven't included this in my list, but I always keep looking at it. It's one of those cards that just greases the wheels, and we always want to include the big splashy stuff, but we do need to make room for the stuff that makes sure that we get there. So I'm going to make sure that I take a second look at this guy, because I think you're right. And if you're just playing, like, if you're playing Mono Red or Boros, I mean, a lot of times I see Pyromancer's Goggles in those decks, or things like Alhermat's Archive sometimes. And this is one of those red spells where the discard is part of the cost. It's not something that you have to do when the spell resolves. So if you copy Magmatic Insight or you um, you know, get the draw, extra draw off it, you can wind up drawing four cards for one mana pretty easily in those colors. That was There's an entire deck built around that in Standard at the time, which was Goggle Ramp. So that's something you can also do in Boros. I just think there's a lot of places this card goes and it does not see enough love. You were talking about a Standard deck and then... You know, putting that strategy into Commander, I thought Matt was the guy who wrote the 60 to 100 articles. I'm taking over his turn. No, that's that's fine, because I'm going to take this opportunity to make my obligatory, it's good in Valduk comment. There it is. <laughs> there we go. Waiting on it all you, made it, you made it before I did, so I was just biding my time. But then Dana brought this up, and it actually, it, it is very, very good. Very powerful in, in a Valduk deck where I'm, I'm only playing 35 lands, but then if I get more than like four or five, I just don't want another one. And um, I've never been sad to cast Magmatic Insight. Gotta love it. Alrighty. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. And hey, what can we look forward to on your future knowledge pool articles? Yeah. Um, so I teased in my last article, my last Tatio article about a second part to the land series. Um, and I will be this upcoming week, I'll have an Omnath article, an Omnath Locus of Rage article. I want to present a different approach to building a deck around lands than I did in my Tatiova one. Um, and Omnath is one of my favorite commanders, and I'm really excited to be able to finally show this deck to you guys. I'm, I'm planning to have some sort of Halloween-focused uh, article for you guys. I'm not entirely sure what that's going to be yet. But uh, after that, I've actually been helping a friend of mine build a deck. Um, he doesn't want to spend a whole lot of money on it, and uh, I think it turned out really well, actually. And so... I'm going to see how much I can budgetize it. And um, I'm planning to present that one too at some point. I'm kind of excited. I'm going to keep that one under wraps for now, but we'll see. All right. You got to love a little bit of mystery among all of the teamer face bashing that you're up to. Over there. It might have some teamer colors involved. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's pretty awesome. Listeners, you should definitely go check out his knowledge pool series. There's a whole lot of knowledge in that pool. So it's definitely worth a read. With that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-hosts so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Scott, let's start with you. Uh, so I... <laughs> I actually don't remember what my Twitter handle is, uh, but uh, you can find me on EDHREC at the Knowledge Pool, uh, and if you would like to follow me, follow me on Twitter, it is at the Knowledge Pool, I believe. Deep. Yeah. <laughs> you sound really confident about that. Yeah, so if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it is at the Knowledge Pool, uh, and you can also find that at the bottom of each of my articles as well. Hashtag on brand, I suppose. Uh, Matt, how about you? So you can follow me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana? You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. And you can hear me once a week on my other show, Commander Central. 
And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenneth Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the EDHREC cast on Facebook and Twitter. We're doing a giveaway, actually, when EDHREC hits 5,000 likes and when EDHREC cast gets 1,000 followers on Twitter. So head on over there, smash those like buttons, and you get a chance at a cool prize. You can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com, and you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast. This podcast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. I think sassy is is more upbeat. I'd like to think so, given that so many of my opinions tend to be deeply negative. (laughs) Nice to put a positive spin on it. I mean, if if we're going to talk about who's the most negative, remember who made our angry MTG Twitter bingo board at work today. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. You almost got rehired for it. I know. Almost. 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 Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.